0: U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History podcast. This is your captain speaking, Dale, and over there is the XO, Stephen. Hey, Stephen. Hey there, everyone. How you doing? So we are still at the Mexican-American War overview. So where we left off was just when we were starting the opening hostilities, even though there were some hostile actions before so are you ready to get out of the way let's cast off so we're gonna begin with the siege of fort texas because that is the first shots first official shots this was on may 3rd this is when the mexican artillery at matamoros opened fire on fort texas which of course they also opened fire well they returned to fire. This
1: bombardment continued for 160 hours. Wow, okay. Uh, so no sleep for the defenders or the attackers then? No, not much. But you'll be surprised in what you're able to sleep in when you need sleep. Well, I've never been in active bombardment, so uh, I'll take your word for that one. But it sounds like uh, we didn't just let Mexico waltz in and take this one like uh, we were able to take Monterey then. No. But if if you want to experience bombardment, we'll go to the gym, uh,
0: grab some dodgeballs, and we'll just do bombardment. <laughs>
1: and we'll see if you can get some sleep. You know, I, I do think I need some fillings replaced, so may as well. They're just soft rubber balls. You'll be fine. So while
0: this bombardment was happening, Mexico surrounded the fort very slowly. Now, there were 13 U.S. soldiers injured during this bombardment while two of them passed away. Among these was Jacob Brown, who the fort was later named for. On May 8th, so five days later, Zachary Taylor, he brings 2,400 troops to relieve the men at the fort. Now, Arista rushed north to intercept him with a force of about 3400 at palo alto the americans they employed a artillery contingent called the flying artillery this was horse artillery artillery pulled by horses
1: oh okay yeah it's a it's a mobile light artillery where you know horses pull artillery on carriages so something like a four or six pound gun
0: yeah, it's, it's light artillery, because the men are also riding on this carriage, so it has to be, because the horses, you know, they can only pull so much. This had a devastating effect on the Mexican army, so in response to this, they used their cavalry, and they also brought up their own artillery, but the
1: flying artillery demoralized the Mexican side. I mean, yeah, you have several shots from a cannon coming from the ridge. You send some folks to take care of the battery. Oh, there's no battery. What do you mean there There was literally shots coming from the ridge. What do you mean there's no cannon? I
0: don't know. So they retreat to try to find better terrain. And they go across the dry riverbed, Riscata, during the night. This was a natural fortification But during the retreat, the Mexican troops, they were scattered and was not able to communicate effectively. So the next day was the Battle of Rosada de la Palma, where they engaged in hand-to-hand combat. The U.S. cavalry managed to capture the Mexican artillery. And once they lost that artillery, they were like, nope, we're out. Oh, they were just thinking, we don't want the fort that badly. Well, I mean, once you lose the advantage, or at least being equal, mm-hmm. you, you're like, this is now suicide, we've got to get out of Right. Here. Which is why their orderly retreat turned into a rout. So, of course, this train is unfamiliar to his troops because of the whole, this is our stuff, so we're not letting you come past this way. And Arista, he found it impossible to rally his forces. This ended up in heavy casualties for the Mexicans. And they were forced to abandon their artillery and stores. And of course, Fort Brown, they inflicted a lot of additional casualties as they were running away. Because now it was just, they're not shooting back. Keep firing. Don't worry about cover. <laughs> And uh, a lot of
1: these poor guys, they drown trying to cross the Rio Grande. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, if the Navy wasn't teaching folks how to swim, I really doubt the Army was. Yeah. Plus, the Rio Grande is not the smallest river. While I've never seen it... It's pretty wide. Yeah, I was going to say, I imagine it's something akin to the Mississippi in its width. And I'm sure, while I've never been in it... I'm sure that current is not
0: the slowest. And so when you're weighted down with all this equipment, even though you left your
1: artillery behind, still, it's not conducive to swimming. Well, yeah, no. An average kit nowadays weighs, what, 40, 50 pounds, give or take? Right. So the actual declaration of war from the
0: U.S. came May thirteenth, 1846. So we're talking... Five days after this attack from the Mexican forces. Mm-hmm. And the US invades on two main fronts. They sent a US Cavalry force under Stephen W. Kearney.
1: Any relation? Uh, well no. No. I uh, um just because I am a Steve does not mean I'm part of the Kearney clan. Well I I have to make sure I yeah, to check. No, no, no conflict of interest here. I can be impartial.
0: Okay. So he invades western Mexico from Jefferson Barracks and Fort Leavenworth
1: and was reinforced by the Pacific Fleet under John D. Sloat. And just to clarify, western Mexico in this time is modern-day Arizona, New Mexico, western Texas, or are we going into current borders of Mexico as well? This was more California area. Oh, okay. And coming a bit east. Okay, so Baja Peninsula and that little bay-looking area around there.
0: Oh, I'd have to
1: look at a map. Is there a map? It's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners can't see a map. Yeah, but you're the one putting out bays. I don't know. Maybe it's a gulf. When does a bay become a gulf? Well, that's the Gulf of Mexico. This is on the other side. Uh, right, right. I could have sworn there was a little bay-looking thing. We're, we're, we're still talking about the west coast. Okay, so according to this map I just pulled up, what I'm talking to- about is called the Gulf of California. So it is not a bay. Ah. Uh, okay. There you go. So I still don't know when a gulf becomes a bay, but it is smaller than that still when it's a bay. It's... Bay and gulf is size difference.
0: Like, the Gulf of Mexico stretches between Mexico and Florida. Anyway, this... Was one of the fronts because they also had concerns that Britain might try to come in and take the area during this chaos.
1: Jeez, it's been like three decades since 1812. Can't we get over our paranoia of Britain?
0: Not yet. Clearly. We were still trying to take territory. UK was still trying to expand. And the US was also trying to expand. And Britain wanted a foothold in the Americas. They're not completely driven out yet. So there was a couple more forces, one of them being under John E. Wool, and the other under Taylor, and they were to occupy Mexico as far south as the city of Monterey. So, you know, war was declared on the 13th of May. It took till the middle of June for the word to reach
1: California, saying, hey... We are now at war. <laughs> guys, um, I, I understand there's a delay in news getting around, you know. Telegrams aren't that widespread, if existing yet. Never mind phones or email. But you don't think to send a few riders to California from Texas where the shots were fired? Like, hey guys, Mexico's no longer messing around. They're bringing guns and they're shooting. Well, the word wouldn't come from Texas anyway. It would have to come from D.C. I mean, yes, but Texas is closer to California than D.C. And both are U.S. territories. Come on, work together here. Well, that's why
0: there were rumors of hostilities that reached Monterey before the official word. And the American consul there, Thomas O'Larkin, he tried to maintain peace between the US and the Mexican garrison that was there. It was a very small garrison and this was commanded by Jose Castro and he tried to maintain the peace until official word of the war reached them. Just a So they heard about what happened in yeah. Texas, but with since it's not official yet, this could have been, you know, a one-off saying Something happened and they opened fire at each other, but we're not actually at war, so don't start taking territory yet.
1: Just because we might be at war doesn't mean we are at war. Can't we just relax and, you know, be neighborly for another month? Month? I feel like a month. Yeah. Yeah, until
0: uh, until word comes. And once the official signed documentation saying, kill all Mexicans, come across...
1: Yeah, yeah. Once, once we have paperwork saying that we can murder each other silly, then we can murder each other silly, by all means. But le- we gotta wait for the paperwork, make sure it's legal. Exactly. Props for being cordial, I guess? There are still gentlemen out there, no matter what. <laughs> Chivalry isn't dead. You heard it here first, I guess.
0: Yes. It's not dead yet.
1: So a
0: U.S. Army captain by the name of John C. Fremont. He takes about 60 men and enters California in December and starts to slowly march to Oregon. He then receives word of the war between Mexico and the U.S., then that the war was imminent, so he takes 30 settlers, mostly American citizens, in june and stages a revolt to seize a small mexican garrison in sonoma these guys take the area on june 23rd and commodore john drake sloat he also receives word that the war was imminent and also of the revolt in sonoma and he orders his forces to occupy monterey All right, this time it's for real. Yeah, and on July 7th, he raises the flag of the United States in San Francisco. And the takeover was complete two days later. On the 15th, he then transfers his command to Commodore Robert F. Stockton, who, well, he was a lot more aggressive. How so? Well, he takes Fremont's forces under his command, which means that... The California Battalion, which is what they were now called, swelled to another 160 men. He then brings them into Monterey, and then they go north and easily takes the rest of Northern California, which means they had control of San Francisco, Sonoma, and Sacramento. When the Mexican general... Jose Castro and the governor, who was P.O. Pico, see this. They were like,
1: we got to get the hell out of here. And they go south. How many men did they have? Or do we not know? We do not know. Okay, because I was going to say, like, it's sounding like the American forces number a few hundred at most. So unless the garrison was practically a skeleton crew, like, if you're in a defensible position normal garrisons are only like 50 60 men really
0: yeah they're they're not very big you're, you're a, this is a
1: garrison not an army they're responsible for the town they're, they're near and that's it I I guess I'm so used to hearing about like oh yes here's a frigate 500 men here's a sloop 200 men yeah this isn't
0: you know on the sea yet this is on land and you don't need 500 men to run a fort. So Stockton takes his forces and sails down to San Diego, stopping in San Pedro. He sends 50 Marines ashore, and his forces enter LA without any shots in August uh, of 1846.
1: This was called the Siege of Los Angeles. I was going to say, this isn't sounding very siege more like, leisurely walk. Yeah, that's, that's all it was. And he says,
0: well, guess what? California is now ours. <laughs> and we did not have to really
1: kill anybody. Go, us. Uh, this is like the original Monterey all over again. Yeah. Now, he does make a
0: mistake. He leaves too small a force in Los Angeles to keep it. Now, the... Californios is what they were the, the local people were called they were under the leadership of Jose Maria Flores and without receiving word from Mexico they decide to act on their own accord and they go into the American garrison in LA and force them to retreat
1: I, in September I mean a foreign power did just march into your city and say this is ours now Yeah, I can't hold it against him for like, yeah, no, 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 this is ours, actually. GTFO, please.
0: Yeah, and they were able to bring enough force that they, that the Americans were like, wait, what? That's too many ranchers and people with weapons that
1: we need to get the heck out of here. Citizens of other countries can have guns, too? Nobody told us that. So, later, Stockton
0: sends 300 reinforcements, which was led by Captain William Mervine of the Navy, but were repulsed in the Battle of Dominique Ranchero, which was fought October 7th through 9th near San Pedro. Fourteen Marines were killed. At the same time,
1: General Stephen W. Kearney. Again, any relation? Still no. <sighs> yeah, I'm beginning to question if I, my namesake isn't for uh, various generals in the Spanish-American War. Maybe. Do so, do do a little bit of uh family history. I was going to say I I I I might need to do that uh, whole DNA ancestry thing. Oh, I did it. It was really cool. I mean, I I had a sibling who did it, and apparently, I have uh, like, thirty-six percent. Neanderthal or whatever. I don't know. It. it exp- Everybody gets that. Yeah,
0: I don't know. Your forehead doesn't protrude. You're fine. <laughs> 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 well, General Stephen, he takes a squadron of 139 dragoons and he takes them on a long march across New Mexico, Arizona, and the Sonoran Desert. So
1: that's not going to be fun. So, not that it comes up often, us being a naval-focused podcast. Is there any difference between a Dragoon and normal cavalry, aside from... I I think Dragoons traditionally focus on using firearms over charging them with sabers, right? Yeah, I mean, they
0: were mounted infantry and were pretty much classified as light cavalry. They did use firearms and that's where they think the name came from and it's you know a french term like parlay so that's it's it's pretty much cavalry with guns okay but
1: i mean everybody had guns now yeah, rewind the clock 100 150 years a little more like ooh they have dragoons fancy yeah now wait while we reload for 30 minutes <laughs> So they finally reach
0: California, December 6th, 1846, and fights a small battle with the Californio Lancers at the Battle of San Pasquale near San Diego. 22 of General Stevens' troops were killed, and his men were bloodied and in poor condition, but they were motivated and pushed on. Until they establish a defensive position on Mule Hill near
1: what is now today called Escondido. Does that name hold any significance? Or is it just a local name? That is what it's called now. Okay. It is Spanish for
0: hidden. And it is in the San Diego County's North Country region, about 30 miles Northeast of downtown San Diego, about 40 miles from present-day Mexican-American border. Hmm. Now, the Californios, they besiege these guys for four days until the relief force arrives. And once they get there, they are now resupplied. They have more men. So they march north from San Diego and enters LA on January 8th. There they link up with Fremont's men, and now they total 607 soldiers and marines. And they were able to finally defeat the ranchers and all of those guys, which now had about 300 of their own men. And this was
1: the battle of Rio San Gabriel. So at this point a lot of the land battles especially in the western theater is a lot of uh Mexican citizens against I want to say militia forces more or less of American settlers starting out but once
0: war were declared
1: right. that's when troops started moving in and yeah. that when that's when the... that, that's when the relief forces started arriving and we went from you know ranchers versus settlers to Ranchers versus U.S. Army. Yeah. Because the next day, the Americans fought
0: another battle, the Battle of La Mesa, and won it handily. So, three days later, pretty much all the rest of the Californios surrendered to U.S. forces. And this officially marks the end of armed resistance in California with the Treaty of. Canoogas being signed the next day hmm. on the 13th of January. That will bring us to the Pacific Coast. Naval action. The USS Independence was part of a blockade of the Mexican Pacific Coast, capturing a ship called the Corio, and a, and a launch. On May 16th, she supported the capture of Guaymas, Sonora, on October nineteenth, and landed Marines and Army personnel on Matsalan Sinaloa on November eleventh. Now once California was secured, most of the Pacific Squadron then proceeds down the coast, capturing all major Baja California cities, and either capturing or destroying all the Mexican vessels in the Gulf of California. And, of course, a lot of other ports that weren't on the peninsula were also taken. Now, their objective was to capture Matzalan, which was a a major supply base for the Mexican forces. So you cut off the, the supplies,
1: you pretty much just lead the army until they're... Forced to surrender. And for any listeners who don't have a map in front of them right now, uh, Matt Stelin is on the western coast of the Gulf of California, pretty much smack dab in the middle of, like, the mainland body going down. So, of course, a lot of Mexican ships were also captured. And the
0: USS Cyan had credit for 18 ships
1: captured and a lot more destroyed. Now, were most of those naval vessels or a lot of, like, civilian shipping for Mexico? It was a lot of everything. A lot of everything? If it if it floats and it has the Mexican flag, it is now ours or it's going to the bottom. So just some good old-fashioned 19th century naval warfare.
0: Yeah. So the Independence, Congress, and Cyan, they enter the Gulf of California and seizes La Paz, and captures and burns the small American fleet at Guamas, And within a month, they pretty much have cleared that gulf of hostile ships, destroying or capturing around 30 vessels. Later, the sailors and marines, they capture the port of Matsilan, which was, as we said, their goal. And this happened November 11th. Now, Manuel Pindia, he attempts to retake the various captured ports which of course results in a number of small clashes and two sieges and the Pacific squadron they provide artillery support so these attempted recaptures were were utter failures so once lieutenant colonel harry s burton gets reinforcements he marches out and he rescues Americans that were captured he captures Pindia and on March 31st he defeats and routs the remaining Mexican forces at the skirmish of Tudus Santos not being aware that the treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo had been signed in February which
1: was a truce
0: that was agreed to on March
1: so so far it, it it seems like United States of America, we need more scorecards to keep track of all this. Mexico, it sounds like aside from coming out on top on a couple initial skirmishes in the grand scheme of things, nothing's going their way in this conflict so far. Right. they open fire starting the conflict and
0: other than the ranchers in California so far being able to retake a couple of cities, they have pretty much just been rolled over and just about everywhere. So after this truce was agreed to and and the American garrisons were evacuated to Monterey, a lot of Mexicans actually went with them. These were supporters of the American cause and thought that lower California was going to be annexed like upper California was. Mm. So they are like, we want to be Americans now. So now we're going to move on to northeastern Mexico. So of course the defeats at Palo Alto and Resada de la Palma, this causes political turmoil in the Mexican government.
1: Now... You remember Santa (laughs) Ana? How could we forget Santa Ana? The double, triple, quadruple dealer. I'm losing track at this point. Yeah. So Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. We can call him ALSA if we want. Alsa. Santa Ana's fine. I'm pretty sure that's how history remembers him. He used this to revive his political
0: career and returns from his self-imposed exile in Cuba in mid-August. He promised the U.S. that if he was allowed to pass through the blockade, he would negotiate a peaceful conclusion to the war and sell New Mexico and Alta California territories to the U.S. And, of course, they were like, sounds good to us. So once he gets back to Mexico City,
1: you know what happens. He alters the deal. Pray he does not alter it any further. Yeah... He reneges
0: on his deal and offers his services to the Mexican government. Because he's such a trustworthy guy so far. And then after being appointed commanding general, he reneges again and names himself president. Guys. How would you not see this coming? So, Taylor, he brings 2,300 troops across the Rio Grande. And... He did have some initial difficulties trying to get river transport, because he's like, I'm not having my men swim across this.
1: <laughs> we saw all those guys drowning when they tried to retreat from us. We're going to do this the proper way. We're going to build some rafts and boats, and we're going we're gonna to paddle across. Yeah. So after he gets his men across, he occupies the
0: city of Matamoros, and then he goes and seizes Camargo. And then he goes south to besiege Monterey. Now, the Battle of Monterey, this was pretty much a stalemate because both sides got really, really messed up. The uh, light artillery that the Americans had proved pretty much ineffective against the stone fortifications
1: of the city. I mean, yeah, if something's reinforced enough, a four or six-pound cannon is effectively just a, a giant BB. Yeah, it just bounced off.
0: So... At this point, American soldiers had never really engaged in urban warfare, and so they marched straight down the open streets where they were annihilated by the Mexican defenders. (sighs) Yeah, which they were—they were hidden in the uh, adobe homes in Monterey.
1: Yeesh, yeah, that's. uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, we can look at that with. You know, almost two centuries of knowledge of uh, conflict and history in hindsight, but urban warfare just wasn't a thing that frequently back then, was it? Not for most people, but they bring in the Texans. And guess who had urban
0: warfare experience? You mad lads. Because they fought here before. They know what they're doing. So two days later, they bring in the Texans to say, hey, how do we do this? And so the Texans are like, Taylor, you need to mouse hole through the city's homes. In other words, they need to punch holes in the sides
1: or roofs of the homes and fight hand to hand inside of these structures. And assume no building is cleared until it has been confirmed cleared. Right. Right. Do you know what the Mexican natives called the Texans? I'm going to take a shot from the hip using very broken Spanish that I remember from high school and my time in restaurants. Uh, El Gato. I'm going to... I forget what bastard is. Cat bastard? Yeah. No. Okay. Diablo Tejanos. Devil... Devil Texans. (laughs) Okay, okay. uh, You know that there's going to be some uh, National Guard uh, regiments that have that name now. And he's looking it up, folks. You said rat holes, so I assumed cat. Ah, well, And a quick, quick Google, there's nothing there, so. Okay.
0: Now, as you can imagine, once the Texans come in, uh, they were... Successful, and eventually, they drove and trapped the Mexican general's men in the city's central plaza, where they brought in the howitzers and shelled them. And this shelling forced the Mexican
1: general to negotiate. Yeah, I was gonna say being cooped up in an area that's probably has very little, if any, cover, and now artillery's coming in. Flag of truce is gonna be coming up fast. Yeah. The negotiation
0: happens, and Taylor allows the Mexican army to evacuate. And a eight-week armistice. And this was in return for the surrender
1: of the city. You give us the city? You surrender? We'll let you guys go. And we won't even fire at you for eight weeks. As long as you don't shoot at us first. Right.
0: Well, I mean, yeah. (laughs) You fire at us, we're going to fire back. That's just the way it works. So... Taylor gets some pressure from Washington. And because of this pressure, he breaks the armistice and occupies the city of
1: Saltillo, which was southwest of Monterey. Yeah, from the map I'm looking at, it looks maybe 40 miles, if that. Yeah, it's an easy day's march. So Santa Ana,
0: he blames the loss of Monterey and Saltillo on the... Mexican general who was in command, and demotes him to command a small artillery battalion. He's like, well, you lost the city,
1: so you see these two guns? That's your command now. Well, maybe this uh, ex-general will become the uh, new Napoleon. No, that's Santa Anna.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, February 22nd rolls around. And Santa Ana was like, you know what? I'm going to personally march north and fight Taylor with 20,000 men. That's not the worst
1: plan I've ever heard. So Taylor, he's there with his men, which numbered about 4,600. But so far, Santa Ana's plan is sounding very
0: solid. And they entrenched themselves in a mountain pass called Bueno Vista. Now, Santa Anna, he... Because of the type of person he is, about 5,000 men desert him. <laughs> he still outnumbers them three to one. Those are good odds. Yeah, he says he's got 15,000 men, but he marched them hard. So they were very tired. Oh. So he does the normal surrender to us, and we will spare your lives. And the Americans were like, No go home. So Santa Anna attacks the next morning. He flanks them with his cavalry and some of his infantry up the steep terrain on one of the passes up the mountain, while a division of his infantry attract the front along the road leading to Buena Vista. And so, of course, as you can imagine, furious fighting happens. And the US troops were nearly routed but because of their positions and entrenchment they were able to retain their positions now the Mexicans did inflict a lot of casualties but then but Santa Ana receives word that there was upheaval in Mexico City so he pieces out leaving Taylor
1: control Of part of northern Mexico. So because he's more concerned with holding on to the political position he uh, gave himself, he lets the American forces bloodied but not beaten. Yeah. If he had kept up the pressure, it's quite probable that, you know, he would have taken a fair amount of losses, but he would have taken out that American army. Yes, he
0: had the numbers to do it. Remember, three to one is the amount of men you want to attack a fortified position. A defended position. And he had that. hmm But because he thought he might be losing his power, he was like, you know what? You guys win. And peace is out. So now we go to northwestern Mexico. So we're at March 1st. And Alexander W. Dolphain captures and occupies Chihuahua City. He finds that the inhabitants are much less willing to accept the conquest of the Americans than the New Mexicans. So the British consul John Potts did not want to let Dolphin search the governor's mansion and attempted to say it was under British protection,
1: but this was ultimately unsuccessful. Yeah, you don't really have a leg to stand on there. Yeah.
0: The American merchants in Chihuahua wanted the American forces to stay there, to, you know, protect them. And Major William Golfin, he wanted to march on Mexico City. And he convinced most of the officers of doing this. But Dolph, but Dolfin, he said, no, this isn't a good plan. We're, not, we're staying here. And then, late in April, Taylor orders the first Missouri-mounted volunteers to leave Chihuahua and join him at Saltillo. So, the American merchants had a choice. They could either go with them, or go back
1: to Santa Fe. Because they ain't gonna get protected no more. Yeah. I'm guessing most of them chose Santa Fe.
0: It doesn't say how many went with them and how many went to santa fe and maybe even how many stayed there but along the way the townspeople of paris enlisted dolphins aid against an indian raiding party that had taken children horses mules and money so i mean at least they were nice enough to help them out with that now of course the civilian population of northern mexico they really did not offer any resistance to the american invasion Probably because of the Comanche and Apache raids that have been
1: going on for quite a long time now. And from what you were saying, the Mexican government was very much, you guys got this. You can figure it out. Yeah. They didn't want to screw with the Indians, and now the Americans are there, and they're like,
0: we're just trying to live in peace. <laughs>
1: The Americans aren't shooting us if we don't shoot them first. And they're actually helping us with the problems we're having with, you know, native population raiding us. Huh, well, what does it take to become a state, guys? Oh, oh, that that's all? Okay, hmm. Um, yeah, I'll take a card, yeah. Uh, you might hear back from me. Yeah, there, there
0: was a guy named Josiah Gregg. He was with the American Army in northern Mexico. And he said that, quote, the whole country from New Mexico to the borders of Durango is almost entirely depopulated. The haciendas and ranchos have been mostly abandoned and the people chiefly confined to the towns and cities. That's how bad it was.
1: Wow. So borderline like post-apocalyptic where outside of the uh, towns and cities, it was... Pretty much lawless expanse. Yep, yeah, because of all the
0: Native American raids. And then, you know, American invasions.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a war going on does tend to destabilize areas that aren't the most settled.
0: A war going on, and then two wars going on. Yeah, yes, yeah. So that brings us to the first Battle
1: of Tabasco. This was led by Commodore Matthew C. Perry. Wait a second. That name sounds very familiar. Not the actor. No, no, no. I feel like we've talked about this guy before. (laughs) He was in the War
0: of 1812. He led the role in opening Japan to the West. Which we haven't gotten to yet. So, yes, we have talked about him before in uh, the War of 1812. Now, later in the future, in 1846, he is leading a detachment of seven vessels along the southern coast of Tabasco State. He arrives at the Tabasco River on October 22nd and seizes the town Port of Frontera along with two of the ships that were docked there now he leaves a small garrison and advances towards the town of san juan ballista he gets to that town on october 25th seizing five more mexican vessels now colonel juan that was over there he was the tabasco departmental commander he set up barricades inside the buildings and perry realizes that bombing the city would be the only option to drive the army out of there. So he withdraws his forces to prepare them for the next day. And on the morning of October 26th his fleet prepares to start the attack on the city. The American forces begin firing at the fleet and the U.S. bombing begins. Now they continue to fire until the evening so they fire all day long at the town square now just before they were going to move in to take the square he's like you know what we need to go back to port frontera and i'm just going to establish a naval blockade to prevent supplies from getting up to them that's not the worst idea yeah I mean, at least his fire was only directed at the square and not at, you know, the rest of the populated areas where the civilians were.
1: So that's good on him. Yeah. I mean, he, so he he did make a point to avoid targeting non-military structures. Yes. His goal was the Mexican
0: army, not the Mexican citizens. So that brings us to June 13th for the second battle of Tabasco. He... Decides to assemble a Mosquito fleet and begins moving towards the Grijavala River towing 47 boats carrying a landing force
1: of 1173 men So real fast what on earth is a Mosquito fleet? well these are
0: a fleet of small gunboats they were used for their shallow draft to go up and down rivers. These were the same type of boats that were used for the suppression of piracy
1: in the West Indies. So so pretty much shallow draft gunboats, probably a single cannon on board, but designed that they can operate in ocean or rivers. No, not ocean. Not Oh, okay. Shallow draft.
0: You put a shallow draft boat into the ocean, you're going to capsize real quick. Okay. So th- these are river boats?
1: Yes. Okay.
0: So he goes up the river and they try to ambush him, but he's like, eh, it ain't going to work. And it doesn't. They get through there with very little difficulty. They get to a S curve in the river, which was known as Devil's Bend. And they encounter another ambush from a river fortification known as Comina Redoubt. But the guns that they put on those boats, they quickly dispersed the forces there at the fortifications. So Perry arrives June 16th at San Juan Basista and commences bombing the city. The attack includes two ships that sail past the fort and begins shelling it from the rear. So they were like, we're going to surround you as much as we can and blow y'all to hell. I mean, it's a tried and true tactic. And then Porter takes 60 sailors ashore and seizes the fort, raising the U.S. flag over that fort. They take complete control of the city around 1400 of that day. So... By this time, the telegraph had started coming into use. So communication started getting a little bit faster.
1: And do you know what this communication was mainly used for? At this point, wartime... Co- well, I don't want to say wartime correspondence, but, you know, wartime orders updating people like, Hey, time out. We're talking peace. Or, give them hell. Try the press. Really? Really?
0: It was used to communicate and update the people with the latest news from the front lines. Oh, that's awesome. There was a lot of news
1: reporters on the front lines reporting on the war. I mean, I'm actually legitimately happy that that was used for, I mean, it's wartime news, but for civilian use first rather than military. Mm Mm-hmm. The Penny Press was actually
0: one of the main ones there. And with all the experience that they had on reporting urban crime, they were like, oh, the public needs to know all about this war news. They love the nitty gritty and the bloodlust and all of that. So this was the first time in American history that accounts by journalists instead of politicians caused the most influence in shaping the people's
1: minds towards attitudes of a war. So with that was um, public opinion swaying for the U.S. continuing the war or was it swaying more towards, okay, we are, you know, kicking them six ways to Sunday. How about we just take what we originally were trying to get and call it good? Because it sounds like we- at this point, if we had wanted to, we could have taken more of Mexico. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that, actually. Because of the
0: constant reports from the battlefield, Americans became emotionally united
1: as a community. News about the war caused extraordinary popular excitement. So this was almost like a a reverse Vietnam, by which I mean, like, with a lot of the reports journalists were giving from that conflict, a lot of public opinion was swaying against that war. Whereas this one, Mm -hmm. they're like, ooh, yeah, go get him, get him, come on. Give us more of that juicy war news.
0: Exactly. Uh, For example, the news about Zachary Taylor's victory at Palo Alto brought up a large crowd that met in a cotton textile town of Lowell, Massachusetts. And New York celebrated the twin victories at Vela Cruz and Buena Vista in May they had fireworks they had illuminations they had grand processions of around 400,000 people and because of this generals tyler and scott became heroes
1: and presidential candidates uh, they certainly weren't the first and I'm, they certainly will not be the last you know military officers to run on the laurels of their victories yeah So
0: the last thing we're going to talk about before we sign off for today is going to be desertion in the Mexican army.
1: Because it was a huge problem. I was going to say, I recall you mentioning something about a quarter of Santa Ana's men. I doubt that was an isolated incident. It's not. Most of these desertions happened on the eve
0: of battle. Most soldiers were quote unquote peasants and they had a loyalty to their village and family but not these generals who had conscripted them they were oftentimes hungry ill and under equipped and not really trained very well and also they never paid them what yep holy crap Their officers treated them very, very badly. So, as you can imagine, these men, they really did not have any reason to fight the Americans. So, they looked for opportunities to slip away and go home. Can't blame them. Now, the desertion rate in the U.S. Army was 8.3%. This is in comparison to 12.7% during the War of 1812, and the peacetime rates of desertion was about 14.8%. A lot of men deserted to join a different U.S. unit so they can get a second enlistment bonus. (laughs) (laughs) Some desertions were because of just miserable conditions in camp, and... Others were because they wanted to use the U.S. Army to get free transportation to California where
1: they deserted to join the gold rush. So, two were chasing paychecks. One was, yeah, I I signed up for the Army, but holy crap, guys, this grub is terrible. What is this crap? Right, well, I mean, there is also a little bit of
0: controversy with the gold rush desertion rates because gold really wasn't di- discovered in California until two weeks after the war so there's some contention there with the uh, with that desertion reason so um, so uh, several hundred U.S soldiers who deserted went over to the Mexican side most of these guys were all recent immigrants from Europe. So they really didn't have strong ties to the U.S. The most famous group of these desertions were called the St. Patrick's Battalion. Half of them were Catholics from Ireland.
1: Who had moved to Mexico seeking a better life? Moved to the U.S. seeking a better life. Ah. These were recent immigrants
0: to the U.S., Oh, okay, okay. Got involved in the war and were like, we really don't have ties with the U.S. I don't want to die. Maybe I should go over to the Mexican side. But on the same thing, the Mexicans were issuing broadsides and leaflets to entice the U.S. soldiers. If they come over to the Mexican side, we're going to give you money, land bounties, and officer commissions. Uh, Mexican guerrillas shadowed the U.S. Army and they captured men who took unauthorized leave or fell out of the ranks. These guerrillas coerced these men to join the Mexican ranks. Now, the promises that were made to these guys, they were like, yeah, money, land, but if we're captured by the U.S., they're gonna execute
1: us. Yeah, that's, that's a firing squad. Yeah, about 50 of the
0: people in San Patricios were tried and hanged after they got captured at Chiumbrusco in August. So yeah, they weren't kidding about that. Okay, so I think we're going to leave it here for today. We still have a few more things to get into for the overview of this conflict. Anything uh, you want to say, Exo? Any last words
1: or pieces of advice or what have you? Well, um, don't desert. That's a bad idea. Um, If you're going to desert, don't switch sides. That's an even worse idea. And uh, if you're going to be attacking a fortified position, don't get cold feet just because you're worried about you know, what's going on back home because you may not be the most popular person after usurping control. Sage advice, XO. Sage advice. I do try.
0: So we want to thank everybody for joining us for this episode. If you would like to contact us, you can send us an email at
1: XO. (laughs) U.S. Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. Yes, or you can tweet at us at XO. U.S.N. History Pod. Exactly. See? Ask for the email first, and I'm good. (laughs) Okay, well, the next time I'm going to ask for the Twitter first. Oh, don't do this to me.
0: All right, we want to wish you guys a fair wind
1: and following sea. See you next time, folks.
0: U.S. Naval History Podcast. Departing.